Well, I want to punctuate our time together this morning today uh, by looking at God's word. So if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles with me. A few months ago, if you're a guest with us, let me just fill you in on where we are as a church. A few months ago, we began a series in the Gospel of John entitled The Road to Resurrection. And throughout the series, we've been journeying with Jesus through some horrible trials. Jesus has been arrested, Jesus has been persecuted, Jesus has been tormented and humiliated. Jesus was scourged, Jesus was beaten, Jesus was wrongly convicted, Jesus was sentenced to death, he was forced to carry a cross outside of the city, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And all that, as John records it, was sovereignly ordained by God. It was purposed by God in order that the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. And let me just say this. If John, we're in John 20 today, but let's say John finished his gospel at chapter 19. If, if, if John finished at John 19, if that's the last word, Jesus was buried and that's it, You know, we would have plenty of reason to worship Jesus, I think, to love Jesus, to thank Jesus. But you know, if that that story ended at John 19, here's what we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have hope, people. We wouldn't have hope for the future, for eternity. And actually, you know, it's Easter Sunday. We shouldn't celebrate today. We should mourn. Actually, according to the Apostle Paul, we should be pitied as Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says similarly in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. If the gospel of John ended at chapter 19, then we should should just all go home and eat potato salad, okay? I should just stop preaching. There's no reason for this. And thankfully, this gospel doesn't end at chapter 19. Thankfully, there's a chapter 20. And if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. The reason Paul can say that is because he knows this, and you know this too. I know that you know this because you're here instead of eating potato salad right now. Potato salad is for later. But right here, we're here to talk about our living hope. This message today is entitled Our Living Hope, and what I want to do is show you from the text three great witnesses of Jesus' resurrection in John 20. Three great inanimate witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And I want to show you also I want to show you the first person in human history that believed in Jesus' resurrection. Who is that first person? Who's the first person that believed? Well, we'll get to that in just a second, but let's start here. Let's start with the three great witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. First of all, we have a moved stone. We have a moved stone. When we last saw Jesus, his dead body was removed from the cross in John 19 by these two secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And they placed Jesus' body in this tomb in a garden not far from Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. And they buried Jesus there with 75 pounds of spices. And they rolled this huge boulder in front of the tomb. 
No one had ever been buried in this tomb before. And that, that boulder was strategic. It was to keep grave robbers from coming into the tomb. And it was to keep the smell of Jesus's rotting corpse from leaving the tomb, or so they thought. So now let's look at chapter 20, verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. A a stone is moved. You know, Mary Magdalene, if you remember, she was there with Jesus when he died. She saw his body go limp on that cross. She heard his last words from the cross, but she can't shake this guy Jesus. The, The first moment she gets after Sabbath, she's, you know, it's still dark. She can't give up on him. She can't let him go. She can't shake what he's done in her life. It's kind of like if you've ever traveled to Scotland before, there's a place in Edinburgh called Greyfriars Bobby. And it's a, there's a monument there to this little Scottish terrier who guarded the grave of his master after he died for 14 years. That little dog went to that tomb, went to that grave for 14 years until he died himself. Bobby couldn't get over the death of his master. He couldn't move on. And, that, and that's what Mary Magdalene's having trouble doing right now. She, she can't move on. She can't shake this guy, Jesus. She can't, you know, you might say, well, is she the first person to believe, Pastor Tony? Is that who you were hinting at earlier? Imagine the shock when she gets there. There's no stone in front of the tomb. What happened? What, well, you know, what is she supposed to do now? What, is she the first person to believe? Here's what she does. Look at verse two in your Bibles. So she ran. And she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. She went to Peter, she went to John, and she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Let me just translate here for you. Mary does not believe. She doesn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Not yet. They have taken, this is what she thinks, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Who's the they there? Who who took him? I don't know. I don't think she knows. Maybe it's grave robbers who broke in and stole the, the clothes and the, the spices that would be valuable. Maybe she thinks they pulled a, a William Wallace on Jesus. You know what they did with William Wallace after he died? They cut off his head and then they hung it on London Bridge as a deterrent for any other Scottish insurrectionists. There's actually a memorial in London. You can go and see this yourself. It brings a tear to the eyes of Scotsmen like myself, seeing that William Wallace. Is that what they did with Jesus' body? Did they, they take it? Did they hang him up somewhere as a deterrent? Maybe the Jews did that. No, the Jews wouldn't do that with a dead body. Maybe the Romans did that. See this guy? This is going to happen to you if you start an insurrection like he did. Mary, you know, Maybe that's what Mary was thinking. She doesn't know what to think. The long and the short of it is the stone in front of Jesus' tomb is removed. Mary assumes the worst in this moment. It doesn't occur to her. It didn't occur to any of them at first that Jesus just might be raised from the dead, even though Jesus told him, I'm going to be raised from the dead. So here's here's what Peter and John do. She goes and tells Peter and John, what are they going to do? They decide to do a little on-site investigation. So in verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. Didn't you love how the kids were running today in that song? That was great. 
That's what Peter, there's a lot of running in this passage, by the way. Mary was running, Peter ran, John, the beloved disciple, ran. And, and let me just remind you of something here. I've said this before. In the Jewish world, grown men and grown women don't run. Okay, that's, that's what kids do in the Jewish world. And, you know, I know some of you guys are running in the marathon in Champaign next week. That's good, bravo. You know, that's, that's, that's dignified in our day. It's, it's crazy, but it's dignified in our day. But in the Jewish world, they, they didn't run. So for them to do this, they, they don't care about dignity right now. They got to figure out what happened with Jesus. They got to find out what happened to Jesus' body. I will say this, though. Even though, you know, even though it was undignified for men to run, the Apostle John can't resist telling his readers who won the race to Jesus' tomb. <laughs> Both of them were running together, says John, but the other disciple, a.k.a. me, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Peter might be the better fisherman. John's the better runner, okay? He just wants to make that clear. Why would you include something like that? Well, I mean, you don't include that unless you're an eyewitness, unless you're telling things that happened. You were there. You saw these things happen. These are the little details that you wouldn't make up if you were kind of telling a story, or, or a fairy tale. So look what happens now in verse five. John gets there first, and stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Here's a second witness to Jesus' resurrection. John's already seen the stone rolled away. He's already come into the entrance of the tomb. He's hesitant to go in. He stoops down and he looks in, but he does see in there an empty tomb. There's no body. There's no Jesus. Let me just say something about this for apologetics purposes. Everybody listening? Nobody throughout all of the centuries of Christianity, nobody believes that the tomb wasn't empty. Everybody agrees that the tomb was empty. Even unbelievers who try to deny the resurrection of Jesus, that supernatural thing, they believe that the tomb was empty, and so they just come up with some other way to explain how that happened. Grave robbers, maybe? Swoon theory, maybe? Or maybe, and this is what we read in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the story that the Jews and the Romans concocted, that, you know, the disciples had come into the tomb, they had whipped the guards, moved that tomb by themselves, grabbed the body, took it out of there, and then, you know, they, they, they told this story. We're willing to even die for it. That's, that's another thing. But here's my point in all this. Everybody believes that the tomb was empty. Everybody knows that the tomb was empty. And, you know, you've got to consider that. You've got to think through that. In fact, if the tomb wasn't empty, you had all these Christian converts in the book of Acts, all these people getting saved. If you wanted to diffuse that and stop that, you would just bring everybody to the tomb and say, hey, there's Jesus' body right there. They couldn't do that because the tomb was empty. You know, every person is entitled to their own opinion. Every person is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. These are the facts. The tomb was empty. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to account for that? You might say, well, it's the swoon theory. Jesus just kind of swooned on the cross. He appeared to die, and then he was revived in the tomb. He escaped afterwards. Really? You want to stake your life on that? You want to stake your eternity on that? 
I think that takes more faith to believe than that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So let's get back to the story here because we have one more inanimate witness to Jesus' resurrection. And this last witness is the one that seals the deal for the first believer in Christian history, the first believer in Jesus' resurrection. John gets to the empty tomb first. But you guys know John. We've spent some time in this gospel already. He's the cautious one. He's the sensitive one. He's the think-before-you-speak person, like my wife. He's the think-before-you-do-something person. What about Simon Peter? Look at verse 6. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Peter shows up and he just barges right in, right? Peter's a shoot first, ask questions later kind of person, right? He just busts in there. He's got to know what's happening. And, you know, maybe, maybe as Paul, uh, uh, Peter was actually entering into the tomb, he was expecting the smell of this disgusting odor of Jesus' decomposing flesh mixed with myrrh and aloes and these spices, Nicodemus' spices. But there's no smell of rotting flesh as he goes in there. All he smells is that the sweet smell of the myrrh and the aloes. And so what else does Peter find when he enters the tomb? There's no dead body. Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. Here's what he finds instead. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came in following him, following John, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with those linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Go ahead and write this down as number three. Here's the third great witness to Jesus' resurrection. Discarded grave clothes. Discarded grave clothes. Here's what they found in that tomb. They found laundry. That's what they found. And some of it was folded and some of it was unfolded. According to John's description, let me just let you in on a little secret in the Caffey household. There's a few things, only a few, that I do better than my wife. <laughs> Folding clothes is one of them, okay? <laughs> you heard it here. She does everything else better than me. But... Folding, I'm, I'm good at folding clothes, okay? And you know what, Sonny and I, we've been watching that show Tidying Up on Netflix, right? So we're even better now at folding clothes. So, but I, I'll tell you what, every time that I fold clothes from now on, every time I take a, a basket of clean laundry and put it on my bed, you know why you put it on your bed? So you do it before you go to bed, right? That's why you do that. Every time I take a, a, a basket of clothes and dump it on my bed, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to think about this. I want you to do this too, every time you do laundry. What did Peter and John see when they entered into the tomb? Empty clothes. Empty clothes with no body there. Discarded grave clothes, testifying to Jesus' resurrection. Are you with me, church? That's what they found there. So let's be clear about this. There's no body in the tomb. The tomb is empty. 
And instead of the tomb, Peter finds linen cloths. He also finds this face cloth. And according to John, it's the very face cloth that was on Jesus' head. So, hmm, okay, let's do some investigative reporting right now, okay? Let's just think about this. If grave robbers had come to rob the tomb, let's just think about this. Why would they take the, the decomposing flesh of Jesus and leave the only valuable thing there, the linen and the myrrh and olives? Are you with me now? That does not compute. That does not say grave robbers have just come in here and stolen. Why would they steal a dead body? That's no value to them. It doesn't make sense. Let's say also that the Romans or the Jews came to take Jesus' body and hang it up somewhere as a deterrent for the people. If they did that, why would they unwrap Jesus' body like this? Why would they waste time doing that? You know, maybe they would take the face off to show his face as they hung him up somewhere. But why everything else? That, that doesn't make sense either. There's actually a further clue to what's happening here, and it's in the description of these grave clothes. When Peter came in, he saw these linen cloths just lying there. And, you know, if Jesus had merely swooned, let's just say that Jesus feigned death on the cross and they put him in there. If Jesus, laying on that slab inside of the tomb, if he had kind of, you know, unwound himself, he would have ripped that up and thrown it. It would have been strewn all over the tomb. Is that how John describes the scene here? That's not what's described in this scene. John was there. He's an eyewitness to what happened. See, in a, in a Jewish tomb like this, you would walk inside and there'd be a concrete slab. And that's where you would lay the body horizontally. They would lay it down. And, you know, you would leave it there to decompose. You know, the, the smell of it would be horrible. That's why you put a boulder in front of it as well as to keep the grave robbers out. You'd come back in a year and all of that flesh would be rotted off the bones. You gather up the bones, you put it away in an ossuary or some other place, some other compartment within the tomb. And then now that concrete slab is ready for another dead body. That's how you would do it. That's how, that was the Jewish custom of, of uh, you know, entombing somebody before their burial. Now, here's what's happening here. What John describes is on this slab, 36 hours after Jesus' death, there's no body. Bodies don't de decompose that fast. Y'all know that. There's no body. And, and these linen garments, they're described in such a way, it's like they were wrapped around something and, and whatever they were wrapped around just kind of disappeared underneath them. And they just fell down, lying on that slab like, like the abandoned chrysalis of a butterfly. And besides that, let's, let's talk about this face cloth. Look at the description of the face cloth in verse 7. First of all, this face cloth, it wasn't strewn all, you know, Jesus ripping, his, ripping it off and throwing it everywhere. That didn't happen. It's, it's piled up next to the linen cloth. It was actually set apart from the linen cloth. So you can imagine if the body's laying horizontally on that slab underneath Jesus' body where all the other linen cloths were, that's lying there. And then kind of in the same distance away from his head, from his torso. There's the face cloth. It's lying by itself. There's actually more that could be said here about this face cloth. I think there's a reason that John fixates on this and tells us about this in such detail. John says in verse 7 that the face cloth was folded up in a place by itself. Everybody see that in verse 7 in your Bibles? Now, that Greek word for folded up is the word entuliso. 
And this is the same word that's used in Matthew when Matthew describes how Joseph took Jesus' body and they wrapped it in a clean linen shroud in Teliso and folded up or wrapped up. That's a reasonable translation of this word in John 20. So, so maybe we can envision that Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, did take this off and fold it up nicely and put it over there next to the other linen cloths. But I, I have another theory here. Because in John 20, this word, entuliso, it's in the passive form. And I think a better way to translate it is not folded up, but, but ro- uh, rolled up or twisted up or coiled up or wound up in circles. And, and here's the idea. It's, it's as if this faith cloth was, was wrapped around Jesus' face. And then all of a sudden, Jesus' face just disappears. And now, instead of being coiled around Jesus' face, it's just coiled around itself. Just, just encircled on itself. How did that happen? How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Jesus was raised from the dead, and his new resurrection body has the ability to materialize and dematerialize as needed. So he just kind of passed through the linen claws and left them neatly wrapped around themselves on that concrete slab. I think that's what John is describing here. I think that's what happened. Now let me ask you this. Was Jesus' body, was his resurrection body a real body? Could you touch it? Absolutely you could. Mary Magdalene touches Jesus' body. We'll get to that next week. Thomas could touch it. Even the scars. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. Jesus said, this was after he was resurrected, he said, bring me a fish. Y'all remember that? And then he ate it. That's great. That gives me hope that in my resurrection body, I can eat too. I, I prefer a steak to fish. But I'm not picky. So Jesus' body, here's what I'm getting at. It's a real corporeal body. You could touch it. It's not like our bodies, though. It's perfect. It also conceivably has the ability to materialize and dematerialize. Jesus... Later in John, he enters into this locked room and he startles his dis- disciples. You know, he just shows me, he's like, hey guys, and they're like, whoa, how'd you get in this room? Well, you know, I have some abilities that you guys don't have yet in my resurrection body. I have more maneuverability than you do. And, and he, just, he just shows up. Jesus can pass through his grave clothes. Jesus can pass through locked doors. Jesus can even pass through a stone that covers up the tomb. So why did the angels move the tomb if Jesus can just go right through? Well, John MacArthur says the reason they moved it was not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in so they might see that empty tomb as a testimony to the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. Everybody with me? This is good stuff, church. To the, it's, to some of you, you might say, oh yeah, Pastor Tony, this kind of sounds like Lazarus in John chapter 11. No, it's not like that at all. Do you remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead? You remember what happened? He had to, you know, they had to help him get the wrappings off of himself. And when Lazarus rose from the, I mean, he was dead, and then he was raised from the dead, but he wasn't resurrected like Jesus was resurrected, which means that he had to die again. Great. You know, I'm sure he was looking forward to that. I got to die twice. That was his 
cross to bear, so to speak, in order to testify to Jesus' power over death. Jesus is not like that at all here. Are y'all with me? He's raised with a new glorified body, a perfect body. And he has abilities that Lazarus never had when he was raised from the dead. But 1 Corinthians 15 does say that Jesus' body is the first fruits of our own body that will be raised from the dead after we die. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been born again, this is what we have to look forward to. Jesus is the first fruits of our own resurrection. So here's what we got here. Let's review. We got a moved stone. We've got an empty tomb. We've got a pile of discarded grave clothes. What do we make of this? What do Peter and John make of this? Do they believe? They haven't seen Jesus yet. They haven't confirmed anything other than the fact that something crazy is going on here. Look at verse 8 with me. So then the other disciple, that's John. Remember, John's anonymous throughout this whole gospel for whatever reason. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. Take that, Peter, I beat you. He also went in. And he saw and believed. You might say, what does he see? He hasn't seen Jesus. He hasn't seen the scars in Jesus' hand. He hasn't seen Jesus face to face. You know what? You haven't either. Not yet. I haven't either. Not face to face. But what he has seen, that is the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, what he has seen in terms of these testimonies, the empty tomb, the grave clothes, that was enough for him to believe. That was enough for him to believe. What do you have, Harvest Decatur? You haven't seen Jesus face to face, not yet. He hasn't appeared to you. Mary Magdalene, he appears to. God bless her. So, so what do you have? You have this. You have the testimony of the Lord written down for you so that you might believe. And John was there. John believed. John was the first of all those who would believe. And he believed before he saw Jesus face to face. And he took this book he took this writing. What, what is the book of John? It's just this long testimony of this one man, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he wrote this down. Why did he write it? Why did he write this down? He told us why he wrote it down. He says he wrote this so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. You have everything you need right here to believe, to see and believe in Jesus Christ. And here's how John closes this passage in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must be, that he must rise from the dead. What John's saying there is that even though he believed, he's still ignorant about a lot of stuff. Which, by the way, we were too when we got saved. We didn't know everything that we know now. There's, there's a kind of seeing, there's a kind of understanding that builds over time. As you come to church and as you study God's word, as you grow as a Christian, as the Holy Spirit works on you. Church Father Augustine said it this way, credo ut intelligam, I believe in order that I may understand. John knew later something that he didn't know then when he first believed. And that's the nature of scripture and 
the prophecy concerning Christ rising from the dead. And then look at verse 10. This whole passage, it ends kind of, I don't know, anticlimactically. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Ho-hum, back to home base. Like, what? do something. What, you know, they don't know what to do. They don't know what comes next. We know from Luke's gospel that Peter was confused at this point. He didn't know how to make sense of all of this. And John believes now that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He doesn't know what happens next. He doesn't know if Jesus has ascended to heaven already. He doesn't know if he's going to see Jesus face to face. And to that, you might say, okay, they go, they go back to their homes. They go back to the upper room, maybe, in Jerusalem. Does, does Jesus ever show up? Does he ever show his face and present himself to them in his resurrection body? Does he confirm what John already believes? We'll see. We'll see next week. Come back for more. We don't just go to church at Easter, right? <laughs> Let me close with this. I'm going to invite the worship team to go ahead and come forward, prepare for a final song. I want to close with this, I'll call it an apologetics quandary. I think this is something that we all need to consider at Easter time. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, maybe you're here this morning, you don't believe, you still need to consider this. Every person who lives in our world has to account for why Jesus Christ was such a significant person in human history. Why we divide even human history between B.C. and A.D. Jesus must have been a significant person. And also, in addition to that, you have to account for that empty tomb. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not everybody is entitled to their own facts. These are the facts. The tomb was empty. Why was it empty? How was it empty? And here's another thing you have to account for. Here's a question you've got to answer. How did this group of sorry, no good, scaredy cat disciples go from abandoning Jesus at his crucifixion to these strong, bold witnesses for Jesus just a few days later. How does that happen? By all accounts, the disciples were in a state of shambles at Jesus' crucifixion. Judas had killed himself. Peter had cowered before a little girl and then went away crying like a little girl. The other disciples had, you know, run, run away, abandoned Jesus. Alistair Begg said, there's still 11 of them, even after Judas died, enough for a soccer team. But they're in no shape to take on anyone. They were in a sorry state. They were dejected. They were frightened. They were hiding. They were demoralized. So how did that, everybody listening, how did that group of lily-livered, scaredy-cat disciples go from that to all of a sudden being willing to preach Christ and to die for that. How, how does that happen? You might say, oh, yeah, well, they just concocted this story and made up something about, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. People don't die for made-up stories. They were willing to die for this. That takes more faith than to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. You know what turned them from lily-livered, scaredy-cat disciples to people willing to die for Jesus? couple things the Holy Spirit right poured out in Acts 2 
But here's the other thing. They saw Jesus alive. They saw him and he was raised from the dead. And if you saw that like they did, you'd be willing to give your life for that because you know that his resurrection is the first fruit of your own resurrection. Listen, Harvest Decatur, don't just come to church on Sunday. Don't just come and celebrate Easter as some cultural thing. Don't just read your Bible as duty or as great literature. See and believe. See and believe and be saved. Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's stand together. Let's sing as a testimony to that fact.